Well, I invite you to please stand this morning as we read the Word of God together. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 13. John 13, we will read verses 1 through 15. John 13, 1 through 15. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you that you are the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that according to your eternal purpose, you sent your Son into the world, and that he came to the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, as we think about John 13, which we just read, we are amazed at the humility of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he was not only made a man, but he was also made a slave. And that he would stoop so low as to wash the dirty feet of the disciples. And in doing so, he provided an example of humility and service 
that we are to imitate in the church. Father, I pray that you would teach us to do to one another as Christ has done for us. Father, teach us even today what it means to follow Christ, to imitate Christ, to be like Christ. I pray that you would cause our hearts to be filled with warm affection for Christ, that we would be laid low before him, Even as we see him in his unspeakable humility, may we be laid low by him making himself low. We thank you for this day of the week and what it means to us as the church. We thank you that we can celebrate every Lord's Day together as a church body that we have a Savior, that we have one who has died for our sins, one who has taken our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west, and he has been raised from the dead, and he is alive forevermore, seated at the right hand of God. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with the desire to exalt Christ and to know Christ and to worship Christ and to imitate Christ. We pray, O God, for your help today that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is our joy this morning to hear God speak to us through His Holy Word. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. The title of this message is The Supreme Example of Humility, part 2. Let me read our text as we begin our time of exposition of the Word of God. The Apostle Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is a lot of talk today in our society about the need for role models. And those who are usually considered to be role models in our society are overpaid, over-muscled people from the entertainment industry whose lives are really not worthy of any imitation. As Christians, our role model is not an athlete, it is not a musician, it is not an actor, it is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to follow Him, we are to imitate Him, we are to think like Him, and we are to walk in His steps. We are not to be like Mike, sorry Gatorade, we are to be like Christ. And in the passage that is before us in Philippians, 
The Apostle Paul is presenting the Lord Jesus Christ to us not only as an example, but as the supreme example of humility and self-sacrifice. These four verses are the subject of some of the most vast and comprehensive scholarly New Testament research today. The amount of attention that commentators give to these four verses is usually far more than any of the other verses they give attention to in the book of Philippians. That is with good reason because these verses provide us with some of the most profound insight into the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But with that said, there is a danger here. There is the danger of taking these verses and isolating them and neglecting the whole point of the passage. You will remember that the context in which these verses fall in Philippians 2 is Paul's appeal for church unity. In verses 1 through the first part of verse 2, Paul gives the motives for church unity. At the end of verse 2, he gives the manifestations of church unity. In verses 3 and 4, he gives the means of church unity. And now in verses 5 through 8, he gives the model of church unity, which is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As we have said before, pride is the greatest obstacle to unity in the church. If the church is to ever experience true unity, then it must rid itself of pride and selfishness and replace these with humility, because humility, beloved, is the path to unity. Humility is the path to unity. And one of the greatest ways that we can learn humility is to see and imitate the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus that is the purpose of verses 5 through 8 here in Philippians 2. Christ is the path to humility which produces, listen, unity in the church. In verse 5, Paul exhorts the church to think like Christ. It is the third command in this letter. We are to have the same attitude as Christ. And then in verses 6 through 8, Paul shows us what that mind of Christ looks like. In the passage that is before us in 6 through 8, Paul chronicles the descent of the Son of God in three steps from the highest position in the universe to the lowest position in the universe. The three steps are the pre-existence of Christ in verse 6, the incarnation of Christ in verse 7, and the crucifixion of Christ in verse 8. All of those are printed for you in the bulletin. In verse 6, we saw last time that Paul begins by presenting Christ as the most exalted being in all of the universe. He is the eternally pre-existent God. He has always existed, and He has always existed in the form of God. And as such, He possesses all of the rights and all of the privileges of being God. Paul also says in verse 6, however, that Christ did not regard his rights and privileges of being the eternally preexistent God as something to be grasped. 
He did not utilize all of the rights and privileges that were his as the Son of God to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he was willing to let them go. He was willing to abandon them. One writer, Kenneth Wiest, says this, The only person in the world who had the right to assert his rights waived them. Jeff Thomas, whom I quoted last week, it bears repeating today, says this, God didn't have to pry his son's fingers open as he clung tenaciously to the arms of the throne of heaven. The father wasn't ever forcing the son to leave for Bethlehem. The father didn't cajole the son or threaten the son or plead with the son to step down and make himself nothing. The Lord Jesus Christ willingly and joyfully abandoned and waived all of the rights and privileges that were his as the eternally pre-existent God. And now as we come to verse 7. We move from the attitude of Christ. In verse 6, all we have is the attitude. We don't have any action. But in verse 6, we move to the action of Christ. We move from His pre-incarnate status to His incarnation in verse 7. But emptied Himself. This is a literal translation of the Greek verb here. But emptied Himself. Himself. This is a strong contrast to the previous statement in verse 6. Jesus was not willing to clutch all of the rights and privileges that were His and use them for His own advantage, but rather He emptied Himself. He refused to use what was rightfully His, and in contrast to that, He empties Himself. But the question is, Of what did Christ empty himself of? Let me say at the very outset that he did not empty himself of deity. You must understand that. He did not empty himself of deity. If he had done that, he would have ceased to exist because he exists in the form of God, verse 6. From eternity past to eternity future, he is in the form of God. His essential nature, His essential being, His essence is that of divinity and deity. He is in the nature of God, and He has never at any time for even a single second ever ceased to be God or to give up any of His, any portion of His deity. He has always been God, and He always will be God. So certainly He did not empty Himself of deity or of any portion of His divine attributes. That is important to say because there is something called the kenosis theory. You may or may not be familiar with the kenosis theory. It is built upon this verb, emptied Himself. Kanao, kenosis, is the idea. And this is the view that Christ when he came to the earth, did give up some of his divine attributes. That is a heresy. Christ did not give up any portion of his deity nor any part of his divine attributes in coming to this earth. That is not what he emptied himself of. But there were certain things that Christ did give up when he came to the earth, and let's consider them. First of all, he gave up his heavenly glory, didn't he? 
In John 17, that great high priestly prayer, our Lord is praying to the Father, and on at least two occasions, he is talking about the glory that was his with the Father that he had before the foundation of the world. And when he came to this earth, that is part of what he gave up. When Jesus became a part of life and time as we know it in this world, he gave up face-to-face fellowship with the Father. He gave up the adoring worship of angels and redeemed saints in heaven. He gave up the purity and the joy and the holiness of heaven for this fallen world. He gave up much. He also gave up his heavenly riches. 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, listen to that, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Do you understand this morning, beloved, that Jesus Christ became poor for your sake? It wasn't for his own sake or for his own benefit, it was for your sake. As the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ was infinitely rich, and yet he became poor. William Hendrickson writes, So poor was he that he was constantly borrowing a place for his birth, a house to sleep in, a boat to preach from, an animal to ride on, a room in which to institute the Lord's Supper, and finally a tomb to be buried in. He was poor. He was poor. He had nowhere to lay his head. He did not own a home. He did not own property. He did not have any advantages. He did not have any privileges in this world. He lived off of the charity of others. And beloved, this is the creator of the universe that we are talking about. Do you understand that? The creator, the eternally pre-existent Son of God, became poor. That is absolutely staggering. Absolutely staggering. One of the wealthiest people in the world is Bill Gates. We're all familiar with Bill Gates of Microsoft. He is also very generous. He has given away billions of dollars. But even after all of his charity, listen, he still has billions more. He still lives in a 66,000-square-foot home. Jesus Christ, listen, he gave up everything and became poor. Bill Gates gives away a lot, but he's still rich. What a contrast Christ is. He has given up everything by coming into the world and becoming literally a poor man, living off of the charity of others. So there were certainly things that Jesus Christ gave up when he came into the world. He chose to give up the glory of heaven, the riches of heaven. He chose to waive all of the rights and privileges that were his as the eternally pre-existent God. And we will never, ever begin to understand the true weight and heaviness of what Jesus Christ gave up when he came into this world. It is staggering beyond belief. It is utter humility. But Paul is very specific here in verse 7 in terms of what it means for Christ to empty himself. He explains it in the very next phrase, taking the form 
of a bondservant. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to empty himself? It means taking the form of a bondservant. The word form here is the same used in verse 6. We looked at that last time, morphe. It refers to the essential being, the essential nature of something. In verse 6, it is the essential nature of Christ to be divine. And here, he takes the form, the essence, the nature of a bondservant. This word bondservant is not a good translation. It is in the Greek, a Greek word that I think everybody knows by now, doulos. Do you remember doulos? Back in chapter 1, verse 1, remember how Paul identifies himself in Timothy? Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Slaves of Christ Jesus. And now Paul identifies Christ himself as a doulos, as a slave. In other words, Jesus emptied himself by becoming a slave. A slave. The emphasis is not so much what Jesus gave up, but what he took on. The emphasis is not so much subtraction as it is addition. He took the form, the essence of a slave. He did not simply put on the outward form. He did not simply put on the cloak of a slave. In essence, he became a slave. What humility. Who would have ever thought that the second person of the triune God would ever become a slave? I want you to think about contrasting this verse with verse 6, both terms talking about the form of God and the form of a slave. Jesus has always existed in the form of God, but he has not always existed in the form of a slave When Jesus entered into this world, that is the point in which he took on the form of a slave. But prior to that, in eternity past, he always existed in the form of God. And listen carefully, he did not exchange the form of God for the form of a slave. When he came into this world, he continued in the form of God, and he added to the form of God the form of a slave. This, again, is part of what it means for Christ to empty himself. But we have to ask, to whom was Christ a slave? I mean, if Christ is a slave, by necessity, he has a master. So to whom did Jesus become a slave? What is the answer? To God the Father. Jesus Christ, when he came into this world, he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. He became a slave to God the Father. Now, let me explain two aspects of the Trinity. And by that, I don't mean I understand everything about the Trinity. But let me explain a little bit of what we understand about the mystery of the Trinity. There are two angles, if you will, of understanding the persons within the Trinity, there is what is called the ontological nature of the Trinity. The word ontological is a fancy word that simply means essence. The essence of the three persons within the Trinity are all the same. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all equally God. One person in the Trinity is no more or no less God than the other members of the Trinity. Their nature, their essence is exactly the same. But there is something different about the members of the Trinity. And that brings us to the second aspect of the Trinity, 
the economic nature of the Trinity, the function within the Trinity. While all three members within the Trinity share the same essence, all three are equally divine, they all three have different roles, don't they? And the role of the Son as He comes into the world, listen carefully, is that of a slave to the Father. He is in the form of God. He shares all of the divine attributes and nature of God Himself, and yet His role is that of a slave in submission to the will of God the Father who is His Master. So listen very carefully. One of the things that Jesus gave up when he came into the world was the independent use of his divine authority and his divine attributes. He did not give up his attributes, but he gave up, listen very carefully, the independent use of his divine authority and the independent use of his divine attributes. In other words, as he comes into the world... He is a slave to the will of God. He does nothing apart from the will of the Father. Let me illustrate this to you from the Gospel of John. Turn to John 4, verse 34. John 4 and verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 5, 19, Jesus says, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the like manner. Go down to verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In chapter 7 and verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In chapter 14 and verse 10, again, he says the same thing. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. One more example down to verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Do you get the point? What is Jesus saying over and over and over and over again? He identifies his relationship with God the Father as that of a slave to a master. He is completely dependent upon God the Father and completely does the works of God, the will of God, and speaks his words. Jesus never for a moment spoke or taught or did anything that was outside of the will of God the Father who was his master. And what is Paul's point? Humility. Humility. Do you see the humility of Christ? That is what Paul is painting for us. And so the first thing that it means here in Philippians 2 for Paul to empty himself or for Jesus to empty himself is to take the form of a slave. But there is more. 
He says in verse 7, and being made in the likeness of men. Just like there was a certain point in time when Jesus became a slave, so too was there a certain point in time when Jesus was made in the likeness of men. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. This is John 1 and John verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became what? Flesh. The eternal God became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternally pre-existent God became a man. What humility. What amazing humility. The eternally pre-existent God became a man by being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And listen, what he got from Mary was not her sinfulness, but his humanity. By virtue of being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was protected from the fall, and he gained humanity. He was truly human. He was human in every sense of the word. One of the very first heresies about the person of Christ was espoused by the Gnostics who denied the real humanity of Jesus. They said that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he wasn't really human. He was a phantom of some kind. They even said that if Jesus walked on the beach, he didn't leave footprints. And that is why 1 John begins the way it does. We have seen him with our eyes. We have touched him with our hands. He is in the flesh. He is really human. He is really a man. In 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, The man Christ Jesus. Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. 1 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, a descendant of David. He is of the lineage of David. He is really a man. He is really human. In fact, He is fully human. One of the most important verses on the person of Christ is Colossians 2.9. I'd like us to look at Colossians 2.9 for a moment. It is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible on the nature of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9. Paul writes, For in Him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Again, Jesus never surrendered any deity, any divine attributes. All of the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. And that simply is this, that there are two distinct natures, both in the person of Jesus Christ. He is 100% God, and He is 100% man. He is not 50% God and 50% man. He is 100% of both. Now, don't ask me to explain any more than that, because I can't. That's a mystery. But it is exactly what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the God-man. Hebrews 2.17 said he had to be made like his brethren in all things. So as the eternal God, he becomes fully man, fully human. He becomes just like us with one great exception. And what is that exception? Our fallenness. 
And that is why he is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that he is not tainted by the fall. He is protected from having a sinful nature. But otherwise, other than that, he is exactly like you. He is exactly like me. He is fully a human, fully man. He was subjected to all of the temptations that we face in the world. He knows what it's like to be hungry, what it's like to be thirsty, what it's like to be tired, to experience pain, to weep, and even to die, as Paul will say in verse 8. Listen to me, the best friend you have is Jesus Christ. Do you feel lonely? Do you feel alone? Jesus Christ is your sympathetic, faithful high priest. He is the one that will stick to you closer than a brother. And so, when Jesus emptied himself by coming into the world, he did so by becoming a slave to the will of the Father, and he did so by becoming a man, fully human. This, beloved, is tremendous humility. Tremendous humility. A little before my time, July 20th, 1969, you may remember that day, the astronauts landed on the moon. And do you remember what Neil Armstrong, and by the way, that is no relation to me, but do you remember what Neil Armstrong said about that momentous occasion? This is one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But that one giant leap for mankind is nowhere near the leap that Jesus Christ took when he left the riches of heavenly glory and stepped down into this world to become a slave and to become fully human. We will never in a million years begin to understand the infinite step Christ took when he emptied himself. So we have gone from his preexistence to his incarnation, which again is an infinite step of humility, but there is more. We now move from the incarnation to the crucifixion in step number three in verse eight, the crucifixion of Christ. He begins this verse by saying, being found in appearance as a man. Now at first glance, you may think that that is a repeat of what he said in verse seven. Paul's point in verse seven is that Jesus became like us. That is not necessarily his point here. Here in verse eight, Paul is speaking about Jesus' humiliation from the standpoint of how he was viewed by men. Being found in appearance as a man. When people saw Jesus, he had the appearance, the schema of a man. Though his morphe was that of God, his schema, his appearance was that of a man in the eyes of God. Of men. To put it another way, the outward form of Jesus to people who saw him was that of a man and only a man. Jesus did not walk around with a halo, he did not walk around with a glow. He appeared in the eyes of men to be just a man and nothing else. He was the God man, but people missed the God part. All they could see was humanity. This is part of his humiliation. It is one thing for God to become man and come into the world, and it is another thing for God to become man and come into the world and people not know he's God. What humiliation. 
I mean, I would think that if God were to come into the world, there would be all the fanfare, all of the, there's every expression that he is God, but when Jesus comes into the world, he is found in appearance as a man and only a man. He's not recognized by his own creation as being the creator. And this, beloved, is part of his humiliation. Do you see his condescension? Do you see how low Jesus Christ is going for you? Nobody would do this but Christ. What is amazing is that as the God-man, he was full of glory, full of the glory of God, and yet the glory of God is veiled. People don't see it. Yes, there were times in his life when he manifested the glory in his transfiguration. You remember that in Matthew. And then there were other times when he manifested his glory in his miracles. But even then, people saw him as only man. When Jesus performed miracles, the people said, We know where he's from, we know his family. He has a demon. This is so humiliating for Christ. Imagine raising Lazarus from the dead and people want to kill you. They don't see his glory. They don't recognize him as the God-man. They recognize his humility, but they miss his deity. But listen, when Jesus was not recognized by his own creation, he just goes down another level. It says he humbled himself, just continues to descend. He just continues to lower himself. How? How did he humble himself? By becoming obedient to the point of death. Please understand here that Jesus is not being obedient to death. Some translations read that way. That is not the point. He is not obedient to death. Jesus is not a slave of death. He became obedient to the point of death. In other words, this is the extent of his obedience. He was so much a slave of the Father that he was willing to die. He was willing to go that far to the very end, to as low as he could possibly go, in order to do the will of God to the point of death. Do you want to see humility? Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Read all that Jesus endured, especially in his Passion Week. He is publicly challenged. He is betrayed. He is arrested. He is put on a mock trial. He is mocked. He is scourged. He is abused. That, beloved, is humility. Humility like the world has never seen. And listen, all of that was for you. It's not for himself. It's not for any personal gain, any personal benefit. It is all for you. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In his trials, he did not answer his accusers. He did not demand his rights. He was treated like scum, and yet he is God. You would think that somewhere during all of that humiliation, Jesus would have shouted with all of the strength in his being, Stop. It isn't worth this. 
I quit. I am not going any further. But he didn't. The more he suffered, the more he humbled himself. The more he submitted himself to the will of God, all the way to the point of death. And unless you forget, Jesus could have brought all of the suffering, all of the humiliation to an end by a word. He could have called upon more than 72,000 angels in heaven, and they would have annihilated Pilate. They would have annihilated the Sanhedrin if he wanted, but he didn't. Why? Because he's being obedient to the Father, to the will of the Father, all the way to the point of death. It was the eternal purpose of God for Jesus to die for sinners and to save them from their sin. I think this statement here in verse, back in Philippians 2, verse 8, is another proof of his deity. The fact that he is obedient to the point of death says much about his essence. Listen, you and me are not obedient to death. You and I will die by necessity. The wages of our sin is death. Jesus did not earn that wage. He did not deserve that wage. He would voluntarily die because, again, this was the will of the Father. So Christ made himself low when he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself low when he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. He made himself low when he was made in the likeness of men. He made himself low when he was recognized to only be human and not God. He made himself low when he was obedient to the point of death. But there is still one final point of descent in the humiliation of the Son of God. And it is the most humiliating step that he took. It's found in the last phrase of verse 8, even death on a cross. This is the absolute lowest that Jesus Christ could go. This is the ultimate expression of his humility. Throughout his entire life, he was marked by humility, but this is the zenith of his humility. Jesus did not die of natural causes. He did not die in his sleep, peacefully. He didn't bleed to death and just go unconscious. He didn't die with all of the comforts that we expect today. He did not die with morphine running through his veins to deaden all the pain. He did not die with his loved ones around his deathbed. Beloved, he was executed. He was executed. What humiliation! What humiliation. And he wasn't executed by being stoned to death or by being hung. Paul says, even death on a cross. As if to say, I cannot believe it. Even death on a cross. I was in a furniture store the other day, and as I was navigating through all of the furniture, there was a box And my eyes glanced to the box, and there were about six decorative crosses in the box. 
And I immediately thought of this passage because I've been in it all week. It reminded me that in our society, the cross has become domesticated. It has become a form of artwork, jewelry, that never would have happened in the ancient world. Do you understand that? Never. To put a cross on your wall in the ancient world of Jesus' day would be like taking a picture of mass graves from Auschwitz and putting it on your wall. It was horrific. It was despicable. It was a scandal. It was obscene. It was not decoration. It was not art. It was not domesticated. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians and it was perfected by the Romans who were the ones who crucified Jesus Christ. It was the most horrific way of dying imaginable. It was so horrific that the Romans who perfected it wouldn't even use it on their own citizens, except in the most extreme cases. It was so horrific that it was not proper to even talk about it in polite conversation. Listen to F.F. Bruce. He said this, quote, In polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity, not to be uttered in conversation. You just don't use the word cross. It was a four-letter word in the truest sense of what that means. It was a scandal. It was obscene. And if the cross was offensive to the Romans, it was even more offensive to the Jews. The Jews hated crucifixion. It was the worst indignity that a Jew could ever experience. According to Deuteronomy 21-23, it was to be accursed of God. Anyone who hangs on a tree is bearing the curse of God. And yet, Paul says, Jesus died even on a cross. Listen, one of the things that Jesus gave up when he came into this world is he was nailed to a cross and he gave up fellowship with the Father. For the first time in all of eternity, there was a break within the Trinity. It is a mystery of all mysteries, and Jesus becomes a curse on the tree. He becomes cursed by God Himself. God the Father lays all of the sins of all of those who would ever believe upon His Son, and He punishes Him in our place, and He is cursed. What humility! Again, this is not for himself. He doesn't come into the world to serve himself or for people to serve him, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He goes all the way from glory, from eternal heavenly glory and the riches of glory, all the way down to a cross. Who would have ever imagined such humility from God? Beloved, Jesus Christ went from the absolute highest point in the universe to the absolute lowest point in the universe, and Paul is painting the greatest supreme example of humility the world has ever seen. Nothing like it. And what is Paul's point by 
describing this humiliation of Christ. His point is this in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Be humble like Christ. Regard others as more important than yourself. Do not consider only your own needs, but the needs of others. And so one of the most theologically rich passages in all of the Bible is immensely ethical and practical. Jesus is presented as the model, the supreme model of humility. Several years ago, D.A. Carson was invited to interview Carl Henry. Carl Henry was one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. Dr. Henry earned two doctorate degrees, which is amazing in and of itself, He helped establish Fuller Theological Seminary. He began the publication Christianity Today. He was a prolific writer. He was associated with Billy Graham and many evangelistic opportunities all around the world and much, much more. Toward the end of the interview, Carson asked how it could be, Dr. Henry, that you, who have been used by God so much and have done so many things and are so influential, how is it that you are not a proud man, not egotistical. Listen to Dr. Henry's response, and I quote him, How on earth can anyone be arrogant when standing beside the cross? How could I ever be arrogant when standing beside the cross of a bloody Savior? Perish the thought. Beloved, that is Paul's point. How on earth could you ever be prideful, Philippians? How on earth could you ever be selfish or divisive when standing beside the cross? How on earth could you not regard others as more important than yourselves when standing beside the cross and you see Christ giving his life up, even to death on a cross, for the sake of others? The cross slays our pride, and it promotes humility that results in unity within the church. When we are standing beside the cross, and we are looking at Christ and seeking to imitate the humility of Christ, the last thing that we would ever do is bring division into the church for which Christ died. And that is the point of Philippians 2, 5 through eight. As we close, let's take our bulletin and look at the meditation theme, which is imitating the humility of Christ. We have six points to meditate upon and to consider in light of this text. Number one, Christ humbled himself by not regarding equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Number two, Christ humbled himself by emptying himself and taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Number three, Christ humbled himself by being recognized by men as only human and not God. Number four, Christ humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Number five, everything that Christ gave up and suffered was for the sake of others, 
not himself. And lastly, number six, if we are to have the same attitude as Christ, we will consider others as more important than ourselves, just as Christ regarded others as more important than himself. Father, we are overwhelmed by the humility of Jesus Christ. This is not what we would expect as we consider God coming into the world. Father, we bless you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for such a gracious Savior, such a humble Lord. We thank you that he was willing to give up all of the rights and privileges that were his as God and stoop all the way down to the cross and to do it all for us, for our salvation. And not only was it for our salvation, but it was also for our example. Father, I pray that we would be gripped by the sacrifice and humility of Christ, and that it would affect how we relate to others in the church, and that we would seek not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives away for the good of others. Lord, may you deepen the unity of this church. May you protect us from pride that could bring division. May you bring attention to our hearts when that is a reality in us, that we may repent of it and turn from it. We thank you again so much for this text. And thank you for our time together. And we pray this all in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.